0: Hello, I'm Aaron from GameMathuse.com and welcome to the 5By, the 12-ish Times a year podcast, just a wonderful place to hear about different board and card games with just enough brevity to keep the seat edges warm. In this episode, we'll hear from Meeple Lady and get an idea of how Woodland Creatures would run a daily print publication in Fit to Print. Roel will report back on the latest hotness in the Dragon Run shop economy in the contract worker placement and set collection game Flamecraft. We fully expect the towers to reach unforeseen heights when Jose provides us his thoughts on the city building game Rise. I'll be underwater with plenty of origami and hopefully at least seven points while reviewing Sea Salt and Paper. But first, we'll hear how successful John was with the canal building and the barbarian repelling in the solo worker placement game, Legacy of You. Enjoy.
1: Legacy of Yu is a campaign game that pits you against barbaric and natural forces as you try to complete your father's work. The game setting is based on the legendary figure Yu the Great who was tasked by Emperor Yao to come up with a plan to stem the flooding of the Yellow River in ancient China. The legendary Yu was to continue his father's failed attempt at mitigating the damage caused by the Great Flood. It took him 13 years to complete the work. Hi, I'm John Gonzalez. Let's talk about why Legacy of You might just be the best solo gaming experience this year. Legacy of You is designed by Shem Phillips and published by Renegade Games and Garphill Games with art from Sam Phillips. The game at its core is a worker placement, deck building, resource management game that plays as a campaign. You play a game and reveal a bit of the story based on whether you won or lost and keep playing until you either lost or won seven times. Yes, you will have to play this game at least 7 times to see it all the way through. New mechanisms are unlocked as you go through the game, but I want to keep this review spoiler-free so I won't mention any specifics. The word legacy is in the title of the game, but Legacy of You is not a legacy game. Nothing is permanently altered and the game can be reset so you can easily restart the campaign if you feel inclined to do so. Legacy of You will change throughout the full playthrough of the campaign. These are not earth-shattering changes, but they are interesting enough that I found myself looking forward to what was in store next. If you lose a game, the game will add something that will help you along. If you win, the game adds something to make things a little bit more difficult. But maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. Here's a quick overview of Legacy of You. You start off with 10 Townsfolk cards from the Townsfolk deck. The Townsfolk deck represents the workers and villagers that are helping you in your endeavor of creating the canals. You can discard them to your discard pile and gain whatever resource it shows on the card. Wood, clay, or even worker meeples. If you banish the card from your deck, you gain more resources. You can use those resources to build the canals, one canal card at a time, build the six canals on the board, and win the game. Sounds pretty easy, doesn't it? Well, it's not really that easy. There's a wooden flood token in the shape of a wave that moves across the board every round, and if it ever catches up to an unbuilt canal card, you lose. I know what you're thinking, I'll just discard the town Folk's card and gain enough resources to build a canal every turn and stay ahead of the flood. Yes, but you're going to be burning through your cards, and whenever you shuffle your deck, guess what happens? The flood token moves forward. You can acquire more townsfolk cards by purchasing them from the townsfolk offer on the board. And frankly, because of the way the flood token moves, you need to be buying up as many cards as you can. You can also build farms that gain you resources between rounds, forts that make your workers more versatile, and huts that open up new worker placement spots. There's plenty to do and consider for a game that doesn't take up all that much table space. Oh, I should probably mention the barbarians at this point. They are relentless. Round after round, the barbarian cards are added to the table and they come after your townsfolk, wave after wave. You can dispatch workers to attack them, or you can bribe them with various resources, But they keep coming back, and if you can't defeat them or bribe them, well they force you to remove townsfolk cards from your deck, making your deck smaller, and hastening the need to reshuffle your deck, and you know when that happens, the flood token will move forward and possibly end the game. Oh yeah, guess what happens when you get overrun by Barbarians? The game ends. Did I mention how you have to win 7 games of Legacy of You to complete the game and claim victory? Yep, Not an easy task. In fact, most people I've chatted with about the game seem to have lost their first game. I played this game live on my Twitch stream. By the end of a few weeks of live streaming, I had lost 4 times and won 7 times. Through the course of those 11 games, my viewers and I noticed a linearity in the progression of each game. There was an almost repetitive path to take each game. Gain cards, build a canal, fight barbarians, which is not surprising since you are essentially playing the same game with new bits added throughout the campaign. The first two losses informed my future approach and strategy. The game gave me a couple of new actions and bonuses for losing, and I was able to carve out a path forward. I learned how the game worked, the temple of managing floods and barbarians. And I might have lost interest in the game if not for its clever use of the included storybook. There's a compelling narrative that is woven through the game's theme, mechanics, and storybook entries. Throughout the game, you'll find golden turtles with numbers on them, and whenever you find one of these, you'll look them up in the corresponding storybook entry. The entries in the storybook are journal entries from Yu's journal, usually followed by new rules and instructions on what to add to the game. The tone of Yu's fictional journal is a bit flowery at points, yet it does well to flesh out the story of Yu and the 13 years' endeavor of assuaging the floods. When I stop to think of the repetitive nature of the 11 games I played, it feels fitting. After all, the story of Legacy of You is the story of a son continuing his father's engineering work of creating the canals over the course of many years. Year after year, game after game, the great work of building the canals in order to save the farms and fields along the Yellow River felt narratively and mechanically thematic in a way that few games do. To me, this game represents a unique approach to solo player campaign games, and I am here for it. If you're a fan of solo games and are looking for something that's a cross between Euro style gameplay and a strong narrative, I highly recommend Legacy of You. For the five by, I'm John Gonzalez. Thanks for listening.
0: Hey, it's Aaron again. I'm going to be discussing Sea Salt and Paper, which came out in 2022, which came from designers Bruno Cathala, whom you may or may not know, and Theo Orteo Riviere, with art from Lucien Dorain and Pierre Yves Gillard. Sea Salt and Paper is published by Pandasaurus Games in the U.S. And I believe it's published by 11 other publishers throughout the world, including Bombix. Sea Salt and Paper is a card game, a card game with admittedly very nice looking origami, origami of various nautical and aquatic creatures, persons and things. Players are going to be competing to try to get 30, 35 or 40 points first. So in a four-player game, you wanna hit 30 points. In a three-player game, you wanna hit 35 points. In a two-player game, you're gonna be the first to reach 40 points. And those points are gonna be accumulating over a number of rounds. Not a set number of rounds, because it just depends on how the game is going. If someone has a couple of really good rounds, they could maybe get a win in maybe three or four rounds. It just kind of depends. It depends on uh, the player count, and just I mean, like many games, how the cards are dealt, and, well, how you play them. The setup is relatively simple. Nobody's dealt any cards at the beginning. The full deck is placed, hopefully, within everybody's reach. And two cards are flipped over next to each other, next to the deck, to be the discard piles. So players have basically two different options on a turn. You can take one of the cards as face-up, or you can take two cards from the deck, look at them, keep one, and then put one of them back onto one of the discard piles. If there's only one card offered, this card, you have to choose the empty pile to start it once it's been emptied. So you are trying to accumulate points, and the majority of those points are probably gonna come from pairs of cards. While you're accumulating those pairs of cards, each pair of cards is worth a point. So a pair of crabs is a point, a pair of fish is a point, a shark and a swimmer are worth a point. There's a card that lets you get one point for every boat, one point for every fish. And so on and so forth. The real crux of the game is playing those pairs, not just accumulating them. Yes, getting them is worth a point. But playing a pair of crabs lets you dig through one of the discard piles and take out a card. Playing a pair of fish lets you take a card from the top of the deck. Playing the shark and the swimmer lets you steal one random card from one of your opponents. Playing a pair of boats gives you a whole other turn right then. So it's not just acquiring. Acquiring is great. They get you a point. You want to play them, use them to your advantage. I'd be remiss if I did not mention the very powerful mermaid cards, which give you a color bonus. The mermaid cards allow you to score the most plentiful colors that you have in your hands. If you have four green cards and you get a mermaid card, that's four points. If you have multiple mermaid cards, you just pick another color. And if you have four mermaids, you win the whole game. Not just the round. You've won the game. Like, it's over. You've won. And you've pissed off everyone. But it's probably worth it. So when any player reaches seven points, they can end the round. You can end the round in one of two ways. You can just say stop and everybody scores whatever they have on the cards that they've accumulated. The push your luck element of the game is the second way to end a round by saying last chance. When you say last chance, that means that you're done. You have accumulated, maybe you have 10 points. Well, you're you're over the threshold of seven. You feel pretty comfortable. Everybody else gets one more turn. If no one has a score higher than you, you get your 10 points, however many you have, that's seven or higher. But you also get your color bonus, not because of a mermaid. You just get whatever the most plentiful color you have. You get one point for each one of those cards. If you lose that bet, meaning somebody does exceed your score, they get their score. You just get the color bonus. And if someone has met or exceeded the game scoring threshold, they win the game. Initially, I enjoyed my first handful of games. I thought it was fun. But then something happened. Once I, you know, got the iconography, now not that there's a ton of it, once I got everything down, I just want to play it over and over again. Even if I lose, just keep going. Yeah, I just find it fun. And I do like the, the pusher luck of the stop versus last chance. It's interesting. It's an interesting way to trigger the end of a round or possibly the game. You think you have it in the bag, you find out that you do not. Additionally, color add, the color alphabet is included. So there's iconography on all the cards and some quick references for people who have color perception issues as well, which is wonderful to be more inclusive for people who Cannot differentiate between all the different colors. It's also a very pretty game. It just, it looks really nice on the table. If I had to give one sort of ironic detractor from the game, the car quality is very nice, but they're a bit stiff. But, I mean, that's not a huge deal. But the game is fantastic. I like playing it. I have not stopped playing it since I started, pretty much. I like Seesaw and Paper. I, I don't know how else to put it. Thank you for listening to me. Thank you for listening to 5 by. If for whatever reason you wish to hear more of me, you can find me at GameEthus.com. I'm also a member of OFPG Voices and the OFPG Preview Team. Take care, stay safe, and be blessed.
2: As someone who started their career in the newspaper world, it's rare to see a board game with that exact theme. So when I saw the Kickstarter for Fit to Print, I immediately backed it. When it finally arrived on my front door, like the morning edition of a daily paper, I was excited to get it on table, to see if this tile-laying, real-time game captures the essence of what it's like to assemble the front page of a newspaper before time runs out. Fit to Print, designed by Peter McPherson and with charming woodland creature artwork from Ian O'Toole, was co-published by FlatOut Games and Alderac Entertainment Group in 2023. It plays one to six people in about 30 minutes. It's a fast-paced and hectic puzzle in the funnest way possible. The perfect game to squeeze into that small time frame when you've got a game day deadline. See what I did there? And fit to print, players take on the roles of editors-in-chief, assembling the front page of the tiny town of Thistleville's newspaper to be balanced with news stories, photos, and advertising. All of these items are represented in over 130-plus unique block tiles, which are placed in the middle of a table, face down. The game goes through three rounds, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, with each subsequent newspaper front page getting larger. The rounds are split up between the reporting phase and the layout phase. Players can decide before playing if they want a frantic, standard, or relaxed game, with the timer set at 3 minutes, 4 minutes, or 5 minutes for the round. When gameplay begins, players simultaneously flip over tiles, with one hand and one at a time, and individually select which piece to add to their cardboard desk. And when a player decides they have gathered enough tiles to fill their front page, they move into the layout phase of the game, all while the clock is still running in case you forgot. And they lay out the tiles on their front page board. And yes, each player gets a cute little cardboard desk you assemble and take down with each game. How you place these tiles matters on your board, as they'll score points at the end of each day. News comes in three varieties, sports and entertainment, news, and business and technology, respectively pink, blue, and green. Articles also come with moods, good news or bad news. The same types of tiles do not like sitting orthogonally next to each other. Photos want to be separated from other photos as well as ads separated from other ads. The exception to this is news stories. You can place different types of stories next to each other. Just like real-life editorial design, you want to maximize your space, and if you are unable to perfectly place all the elements on your front page, or worse, you didn't get enough tiles to fill the space, which happens all the time in gameplay, you'll be penalized with negative points. The person with the largest continuous white space will receive the biggest penalty. Alternatively, if you take too many tiles, you'll also get negative points, but luckily, you'll have them on your desk to publish in tomorrow's front page. Players also begin with a centerpiece, which is to be placed anywhere above the fold and covering the star printed on the board. The CPs offer different ways to score points if you meet their qualifications. Photo score points for news stories it's adjacent to. You also want a balanced front page. Too many sad stories versus happy stories and you'll be docked points. Lastly, ads give you revenue, which will be added up after three days and the person with the least revenue goes bankrupt, goes out of business and is not eligible to win. Fit to Print also comes with advanced modes such as player powers and adding a breaking news deck, which places unique restrictions and bonuses for the day. The rulebook also comes with family mode to reduce complexity, as well as a solo mode that comes with scenarios to track achievements. Lastly, the game also comes with rules for a newsroom mode, which supports 4-12 to 12 players in teams of two. Within each team, one player is the reporter and the other is the layout editor, and the teams are spaced apart around 12 feet. I haven't tried this yet, but I can imagine the frenetic chaos of a reporter picking up tiles from a centralized table. So how does fit to print stack up? It's so freaking fun. That tetromino puzzle is a mechanism many of us are familiar with. But amping up the gameplay with the real-time aspect of it? Genius. Every time I've played, I like to yell things out like 30 seconds left during gameplay, to which someone inevitably yells, Shut up! and a few other colorful words that I won't be repeating for our family-friendly podcasts. Once that clock starts for the round, the excitement fills the room, and everyone becomes hyper-focused on picking up pieces to collect on your little cardboard desk. Sometimes your eyes are bigger than the allotted space for your front page, but then Sunday rolls around and that extra space somehow exponentially makes A1 so much harder to fill up, and fill it up well. One of my friends described fit to print as Galaxy Trucker, without the misfortune of having your ship getting blown to bits. Here you just scrap your front page after scoring your points and get ready for next day's edition. And the game's artwork is just so cute and the character's endearing. I have a fondness for Boris Ehrenstein, the grizzled news reporter who started out as a copy editor. He looks like the type of guy who'd make deadlines, even if you just have three minutes left. If you love real-time tactile games, then fit to print is just for you. And that's fit to print this is Meeple Lady for the Five Buy. You can find me on all the socials as Meeple Lady or on my website BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye.
3: As a flamekeeper, you have the ability to communicate with artists and dragons who help out in the shops of the village. You match these dragons according to the skills needed by the various shopkeepers, earning you a reputation as someone who can attract the most talented dragons in the land. Will your hard-earned rep be enough to be named the Master of Flamecraft? Or will one of your opponents prove to be the better Flamekeeper? Hi friends, this is Ruel Gaviola. On the tabletop is Flamecraft, a game designed by Manny Vega with art by Sundara Tang. Flamecraft was published in 2022 by Cardboard Alchemy, who sent me a review copy of the deluxe version. They also sent dragon plushies, coasters, stickers, and a book featuring the art of Flamecraft. In Flamecraft, you'll visit a shop, then either gather goods from it or enchant the shop. You'll then have one or more dragons fire up their abilities, leading to additional resources, new shops opening up, fancy dragons joining the village, and more. When the last artisan dragon or enchantment is drawn, players take one more turn before final scoring. The most reputation wins! If Flamecraft isn't the cutest worker placement game ever, then I don't know what is. The artwork could be a classic Disney film about beautifully illustrated artisan dragons, with names like Potato, Lavender, and Cinnabun, along with their friends the Fancy Dragons, Frazzle, Boo Boo, and Chonkers. It's the perfect next-step board game. With such an approachable setting, Flamecraft is a terrific choice for casual gamers ready for something more complex than games like Ticket to Ride or Carcassonne. There's more setup than an introductory game, though, and lots more on the table to digest, but Flamecraft's table presence and setting can go a long way to convince new players to take the next step in their gaming journey. At its heart, Flamecraft is a mix of worker placement, resource management, and set collection. You'll go to the various shops to perform actions to gain plants, gems, food, and other goods, which you'll then spend to enchant shops, score reputation points, and perform other actions. The worker placement mechanism here is friendly. If you want to go to a shop where there's another player, you'll pay one coin to each player already there. This reminded me of the large meeple in Viticulture, which allows you to go to any spot. As long as you haven’t played the large people that round, you have some flexibility. Likewise, in Flamecraft, if you have coins, then you’ll have the same type of flexibility. I enjoyed how the village board evolved each round. There are starter shops where you send your artisan dragons. Each shop has a resource icon, and your dragon must match it. Then, you may fire up the ability of the dragon, which will give you more resources, another artisan dragon, reputation points, or allow you to move dragons between shops. You might also draw a fancy dragon which offers ongoing abilities or end-game scoring. These range from converting resources to reputation, aka victory points, to scoring sets of artists and dragons at the end of the game. After three dragons have been placed in a shop, a random shop is added to the village. Each of these has an ability that the starter shops don't. So, in a new shop, you might be able to place a dragon while ignoring the icon requirement, or pay a coin to use the abilities of all the dragons in the shop. Along with gathering goods, your other main action is enchanting shops. You'll simply turn in the resources indicated by one of the enchant cards, place it in a shop with a matching icon, and fire up all dragons in the shop, giving you a chance to earn resources, reputation, and perform other actions. I love that the shops all have hilarious names like Gnome Depot, Nunya's Beeveswax, and one of my favorites, a bakery called Critical Rolls. <laughs> in fact, this is where the game proves to be more than a simple introduction to modern board games. The amount of choices increases with each new shop that enters play and the fancy dragons that players receive. More options are available than in previous rounds, opening up more possibilities each turn. The game is a breeze for one or two players, but I hesitate to recommend it for the full five player count. My gut feeling is that it could bog down due to analysis paralysis, since more choices appear as the game develops. Although I haven't played it at five, a quick scan of its BGG page seems to confirm this. Before playing Flamecraft, I'd heard that it was lighter than people expected. The game is on the lighter end, and it seems like it's ripe for expansion. In fact, there are optional companions that you can add, giving each player a unique one-time ability. Perhaps expanding on these companions in an expansion would appeal to hardcore gamers. But this is what I love the most about Flamecraft. It's not trying to be a heavy hero, instead sticking to the accessibility of its setting, which ensures it'll get to the table often. I also enjoy the solo implementation, which was easy to manage. A handful of cards are removed from gameplay. Then, when you hit certain scoring thresholds, you'll unlock cards for the next game. It's not quite a campaign, but unlocking achievements is a fun way to approach a solo variant. I livestreamed the solo game on Twitch, and you can find the video on demand on my YouTube channel. Thanks to Cardboard Alchemy for the deluxe version of Flamecraft and the Flamecraft Extras. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5x. Thanks for listening! Find me on social media at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A.
4: Listeners of the 5 By. can I call you that? Is that okay? Are we, are we cool to go by our first names like that? Uh, we've spent some time together now, and I feel like it's time for me to introduce to you one of my new favorite mechanisms. Tracks. Oh, fabulous. Now, I'm not talking about trains moving on tracks, but I do like those games too, but I'm talking about tracks on games that you can move up in or around on. And I just played a game that is tailor-made for us track enthusiasts. Rise is a two-to-four-player city management game set in the very specific era of uh, at some point in history, designed by Remo Considori and Marco Pranzo. I'm very sorry about that pronunciation. And it's published by Capstone Games. So as you set up this game, you're going to discover that this game boasts not having just one track. Not two tracks. Nor thrine tracks. But you get ten double-sided tracks to choose from. As you set up these tracks, each of these tracks are going to correlate with different aspects of the city that you're managing. Things like culture, education, industry, banking, satisfaction. So many more. All those tracks. But this game holds a secret. There's actually one more track. Oh, sneaky. The actions that you choose from are actually laid out on an action selection track. Ah, oh, yes, more tracks. This track uses cards that alternate between ever changing action and event cards. And when you play the game, you're going to choose one action on the track. And the further back on the track that you go, the more money it costs, but you get to participate in the events that precede your action. Which sometimes may not be a good thing. But these action spaces are going to allow you to move up on one of the different tracks. Boop. Now this may allow you to move up on a different track. Boop. And if you plan it well, you may be able to move up on a different track. Different track after that. Boop. Tracks are going to score you in different ways. Some are scored during the game, some are scored at the end of the game. It just depends on each track, and every track works a little bit differently. And after a set number of rounds, the game is gonna end, and whoever has the most tracks at the I mean the most points at the end of the game will win. Now let's get the obvious out of the way. I really enjoy this game and I'm gonna be recommending it to most people. But here's why. The game is really simple to play. It's very rewarding for players in many aspects. Do you like moving on tracks? Yeah? <laughs> I know you do. That's why you're here, right? Here's 10 of them to play on. Hate when you play a game and you don't get a reward because you don't land on it? Well, Raya says that's fine. You get all the things that you pass and the thing that you land on. Go ahead and take it. Oh, look at that. All those rewards let you move up on multiple tracks in one turn. Boop, 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 boop. Oh, so many combos and wombos that they add in for free. All of it. There's lots of decisions to make. Do you take an early action that might be really good, but then miss out on all the really cool events that are going to happen? Or do you try to spend all your money, which is really tight in this game, to take late game or late round actions and hope that you're able to recoup that money at some point? All of this is wrapped up in a package that ends in about an hour. chef's kiss. But there's a few things in this game that aren't the cook smooches. First, there can be so much in this game that's going on between the different tracks and the different combos that you're going to set off by moving up on the different tracks that it's going to be easy to miss moving up on a track. Boop. Or you might miss taking a reward. Or you might forget how one of the tracks works. Or you might forget that the specific track is going to give you endgame scoring, and you kind of forget all about it. That's just a lot to juggle. Uh, Next is the game is pretty straightforward to play, but your first game of it might be a little slow because you're going to be looking up icons and trying to figure out what does this mean again, what does that mean again? It's not a huge hurdle. Halfway, or even before halfway through the first game, we got over that pretty quickly. Lastly, the art and theme in the game uh, exist. But the game does nothing to really accentuate the theme. It's not that it's bad, that the art is bad, or the aesthetic is bad. It's just not very exciting to look at. And you're really there for the track. So as long as you're willing to overlook these things, Rise is a game that you're going to have a great time with, and it's going to have long legs and tons of replay value. My name is Jose. You can find me on Instagram at SirBearsworth or on, on X, there I said it, at SirBearsworth1. Come by, say hi,
1: and let me know what you've been playing. You've been listening to The 5 by, your monthly source for board game reviews. Feel free to follow us on Twitter at 5BuyGames. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash 5BuyGames. Join our BGG guild Number 2810. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Check out our website at 5bygames.com. If you like what we do here and want to support our work, visit our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash 5bygames. And as always, thank you so much for listening to our podcast.
3: For more shows like this, check out the Goonhammer Media Network. More info at media.goonhammer.com.